Greetings and welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series. Podcast episodes are available on VHHA.com and on popular podcast hosting apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and many others. Episodes of the podcast also air each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, and 820 a.m. across Central Virginia. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. Again, that's PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. And today we're excited to be joined by Shirley Johnson, sickle cell research operations manager and patient navigator supervisor at VCU Health for a conversation about sickle cell disease, research and treatment, and how that applies to health equity considerations and more. But first, welcome to the program, Shirley. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we appreciate you making time to be with us. So let's start with an explanation of sickle cell disease, which in simple terms is an inherited blood disorder that can affect anyone, but disproportionately impacts African Americans. Surely, if you would, can you tell listeners about sickle cell disease, its characteristics, and its health implications for people with this condition? Sure. First of all, like you said, sickle cell disease is an inherited blood disorder that in the United States of America does impact primarily African Americans. But it also can impact people of Mediterranean descent, um, Indian descent, Middle Eastern descent, and Hispanic descent. So in our country, we have approximately 100,000 people with sickle cell disease um, due to the fact that there is not a dedicated database. Um, that is an estimated number, although we do believe that number could be higher. This disease does impact uh, individuals from birth, and it, it impacts a lot of um, the pain that individuals feel, and depending on the genotype that they have, some of those conditions could be pretty serious and other conditions might be more manageable. Many times uh, patients may not experience chronic pain or problems with their disease until they reach adolescence or young adulthood. And then they usually have a lot of um, organ issues that ultimately may lead to severe complications and unfortunately sometimes even death. You mentioned the potential um, mortality that's associated with this. Does this, uh, on average, shorten the lifespan for patients who have this disease? So up until about the mid-1970s or late-1970s, the average lifespan for a sickle cell patient was 18 years of age. Due to just some ongoing increases in the amount of health care that we're able to provide to patients, as well as some recent medications that have been approved by the FDA, we actually do have people who are living a lot longer. In fact, our oldest patient at DCU just turned 81. Um, well, we would say that the average person is probably living into their 50s or 60s, but definitely we have a longevity um, that we did not have about 20 or 30 years ago. Well, I appreciate you providing that update. And so you mentioned the types of individuals, whether uh, African-American folks, folks of, of Latino descent, uh, as you said, Middle Eastern or Mediterranean descent. The statistics I've seen, uh, to put this in perspective, is that this disease affects about one out of every 360 births of black Americans. And in Virginia, it's the most prevalent disorder identified in newborn screening tests. You talked about what sickle cell is how it can impact organ function. And that can, of course, impact all sorts of quality of life issues, uh, employment, living conditions, access to care. Sickle cell is classified as a disparities disease by the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. Can you explain what that means in layman's terms? So we were really excited to hear about the NASM report, which you know you just identified coming out uh, just recently and being able to classify sickle cell disease as a health disparity. Of course, those of us who have been working with this, this disease for decades have recognized that it is a disease that has not been provided with a lot of money as far as research as well as uh, treatment or positions that were 
qualified or wanting to take care of sickle cell patients. Now that the NASM report has come out, it has been able to identify some strategic planning that we hope over the next two to five years will increase and impact the disease of sickle cell. One of the things that I think is really important with the report is there's some short-term planning that we think could be implemented now, as well as some long-term planning that may overall continue to provide possible cures for sickle cell disease or in definitely improving the medication and outcome variables for patients uh, with this disease. So in the short-term planning, we believe that we want to remove the barriers of care for patients with sickle cell. So although we do have many physicians who, um, of course, you know, can treat patients with sickle cell disease, there is not a lot of adult providers who are wanting to do that for many reasons. And I don't want to disparage any physician for any reason, but Many of the times it has to do with the amount of opioids that the patients are taking. And of course, that is a really big barrier around the country. And we also want to make sure that there's evidence-based medicine that's related to sickle cell disease, and that's extremely important. And we also want to increase the number of nationwide physicians that are out there that we might be able to train so that they feel more comfortable in taking care of patients with sickle cell disease. And those are some of the short-term impacts that I know the NASM report was trying to put out there. Some of the long-term effects is that we want to make sure that we continue to increase our research funding, which is really uh, important to be able to continue to provide support and care for patients. And we also want to increase the national advocacy uh, levels, um, both from the political side as well as from community-based organizations so that they receive the financial support that they need to be out in the community and being able to really work with patients with this disease. Uh, Many of these patients come from socioeconomic poverty. Um, Although we do have patients who do very well um, and some have professional careers, many of them, you know, do struggle with dealing with psychosocial dynamics as well as other things that might impact their ability to maintain their care. I do know that one of the final outcomes for um, the NASM report is to really focus on the behavioral health and mental health issues for patients with this disease. Many of them do suffer from severe depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of the way they've been treated in the medical community. So it sounds like there's a lot happening in this space and and some new and encouraging developments. I want to shift a little bit to VCU Health in particular. I know VCU Health has, has been, is and has been a leader in this space as one of the top 10 sickle cell centers in the nation in terms of patients cared for, uh, funding and research efforts. Can you tell us, Shirley, about some of the efforts at VCU in relation to adult sickle cell care, which I know includes housing programs, newborn screening, pediatric transition, uh, treatment research, uh, and how how all that impacts patients, as you discussed, uh, given that there have been some historical challenges about folks finding uh, access to care and treatment for this condition and finding providers uh, with, the, um, with the appropriate experience in this area. So we've been very fortunate over at um, the VCU Health System over the last three and a half years to be able to put together what we consider an adult sickle cell medical home program. So this program started out in 2018. We had, we had been working on a grant and we realized that there needed to be a lot of uh, community intervention for our patients on the adult side. So we were working with patient navigators or better known as community health workers to figure out what the problems were out there with our patients and why so many times they were coming to the emergency room and they were staying in the hospital and we really wouldn't be able to get their disease under control. So after taking a a plan to leadership, we were able to receive funding for this medical home. And now after three and a half years, we have been able to 
reduce so you know some of the CMS guidelines, which is the number of uh, days that patients remain in the hospital, um, the cost overall cost to the healthcare system, improving the quality of life of patients with sickle cell disease, as well as being able to provide them the support that they need both in the academic medical center and in the community. On top of that, we also work hand-in-hand with our pediatric program. And like you mentioned, the transition of patients with sickle cell disease has always been a very big challenge. I always related to all of us as we were growing up and, you know, we turned 18 and all of a sudden we were able to go off and we were able to do the things that we needed to do, whether it was going to college or trade school or going into the workplace. You now then take that same young adult and you have them diagnosed with a chronic disease. And many times over that first year to two years after they transitioned out, we would lose them to follow up. We wouldn't be able to track them down. And unfortunately, we were losing about two to four patients a year in that age group. Now, with our collaboration between the pediatric and adult program, we are able to really track these individuals. We're able to provide some behavioral health screening to help identify a little bit earlier some of the challenges that they may be facing and trying to head those off a little bit more, as well as working hand-in-hand with that program to provide support both for the patient when they're about to transition and then after they transition. So that's a really big part of our program that we're very proud of and we're continuing to work hard to make sure that we continue to improve that area because of just the complexity and, of course, just some of the challenges we have with working with young adult patients. We also, through our medical home, have been able to establish with the pandemic recently, about the last year or so, um, an infusion program. So that has been very helpful for us to have patients come in for day hospital treatment for pain. They do not have to be admitted or go to the emergency room. Uh, We are now able to see at least two patients per day, and we're hoping to expand on the number of chairs that we have for that program as we continue to move forward. We also just have a really engaged team, and I think from the perspective the success of our program, it really has been the key focal point of why we are doing so well in caring for our patients. It doesn't matter whether you're the medical director, whether you're the patient navigator, whether you're one of the nurses in the program, we all work hand in hand to make sure that the needs of the patient are being met. Since the pandemic, um, we now meet every morning on Zoom and we review any challenges that might have come up the day before, whether it was a patient in the infusion center, somebody that may have shown up in the emergency room, maybe an outpatient clinic appointment, and we address what that patient's needs are, and then whoever needs to kind of be engaged with that patient to make sure that they satisfy that problem, we identify that person and they move forward to address that particular issue. I just can't stress enough that relationship and partnership with everybody that's part of that team, and I really do think it has really made us a more unique uh, type of program than anywhere around the country. Well, it sounds like uh, you and the folks that you work with are really passionate about this issue and dedicated to it and really looking to innovate in this space um, alongside or running parallel to some of the encouraging developments that we discussed that are happening on the national level. So I uh, really appreciate your, your dedication. And it's just another example of the commitment and the care that caregivers and healthcare professionals and providers across the Commonwealth demonstrate every day. So I appreciate sincerely you sharing that story uh, and all the work that you've put in on the subject. And now that we've uh, handled some of this serious stuff, Shirley, I do have a couple uh, more fun personal questions for you just to give our listeners a bit of a sense of who you are beyond the work you do. Uh, The first is, and this is an entirely imaginary premise, but in the hypothetical scenario that you could anticipate your final day on earth, what would your last meal be? Hmm, that's a good question. Probably homemade pizza. So I am from, I am from Italy. 
and uh, we do um, enjoy our pizza. So I think I would want to find the best pizza maker uh, around the world and have them make me the best pie that they could possibly do with all my favorite toppings. And what are those toppings? I love pepperoni. I love red onions. I love green peppers. And once in a great while, I might like to have some chicken on my pizza. Okay. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, when, when I, I would say when applied sparingly. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Next question for you, Shirley, is what is one post-COVID thing you're most looking forward to being able to do as we slowly emerge from social distancing and, and begin to re-engage with uh, the broader outside world? You know, I think I'm really looking forward to going back to some national conferences and seeing some of my colleagues that, you know, we haven't been able to see. Conferences are a really great way to network and unify and collaborate on. And even though, you know, we've been doing many virtual conferences, including one that our team put together here at BCU back in March, it's just not the same as being face-to-face with other colleagues and sharing their information and maybe sometimes, you know, doing it over drinks or dinner and it's kind of a more laid-back environment. And I think all of us do really miss that camaraderie that we've been able to share with people who work in our field around the country. And so I'm looking forward to something like that, hopefully taking place sometime in the near future. Uh, yes, the opportunity to to engage with colleagues who work in a similar discipline, um, certainly both networking and just uh, sharing ideas uh, really does have a lot of value. So I uh, certainly can understand that. And then finally, Shirley, if you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book, one album and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself company? We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, what are your three entertainment survival kit picks? So I think my favorite movie would be The Notebook uh, because I'm a romantic. Mm -hmm. And so I absolutely love that book. And I think it does touch a lot on the kind of person that I am. So it's not going to be easy. It's going to be really hard. And we're going to have to work at this every day. But I want to do that because I want you. I want all of you forever. You and me every day. (laughs) I think my favorite music would probably be... A CD of Styx, which is kind of uh, back in the day. I mm-hmm. love music from the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be a pr- pretty great, you know, tunes to have when you're on the beach and you're kind of just laying out there and hoping somebody might find you someday. I'm sailing away. And I think my favorite book, I have so many I think it's really hard for me to choose a particular book. Um, but I do like fictional, mysterious type books. So I, I like authors like Lee Child and um, David Balducci. So probably anything along those lines might make me pretty happy. I just can't pick out one right now. Okay. Well, domo arigato, Mr. Roboto. And with that, that's going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so that you know when new episodes are available. We want to once again thank our guest, Shirley Johnson, Sickle Cell Research Operations Manager and Patient Navigator Supervisor with VCU Health for sharing her wisdom and insight and her time with us today. So thanks for joining us today, Shirley. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. 